Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. It has never been easy to make a living as a writer, musician, or artist. And while technology now makes it possible to find global audiences for all manner of creatives, that's a mixed blessing at best, according to a new book co-authored by Cory Doctorow. It's called Choke Point Capitalism, How Big Tech and Big Content Captured Creative Labor Markets and How We'll Win Them Back. He's also the author of a just-released novel called Red Team Blues, and here's Corey Doctorow back in our studio tonight. Great to see you again. Nice to see you too. Is it, is it kind of okay to come back to your hometown? I love coming back to Toronto. Uh, although, you know, I've had this fast forward vision of it for the last 25 years. So I only get it like in these flashbulb moments. Uh, and it does have that weird dream logic of like being home, but all the furniture is in the wrong place. <laughs> right on. Yeah. You feel at home in California? Mm, I, you will never feel as at home as you do in the city you grew up in. Okay. It's, it's home, but it's not home the way Toronto will be. And I don't think any place ever will be. Good. Yeah. Let's start with a nice, tice, a nice tight question. Culture, you say, has been captured. How so? Yeah, so my co-author, Rebecca Giblin, and I, we set out to investigate this question. How is it that copyright now lasts longer, covers more works, uh, has stiffer penalties? Those penalties are easier to get. The entertainment industry is larger and more profitable than it's ever been, and the share of money going to creators is lower than it's ever been, and it's been in decline for 40 years and continues to get lower. And our conclusion was that because the way that we expect creators to wring a living from the intermediaries that bring our work to market, be they TV networks or publishers or what have you, is um, through copyright, a, a right they bargain away, and since we bargain with five publishers, four studios, three labels, two uh, um, ad tech companies and one company that controls all the ebooks and all the audiobooks in the world, that adding more copyright doesn't help for the same reason that like giving your bullied kid extra lunch money won't help. There isn't an amount of copyright that you give to creators that will leave enough behind when they enter into these lopsided uh, negotiations for them to earn a living off of. And indeed, if we're just transferring these rights to large monopolized firms, then it cements their dominance and makes them harder to bargain with. And so we devote this book to figuring out how to unrig these markets. Has it not ever been thus? No, it really hasn't. You know, 40 years ago, we took this decision as a society all around the world in the kind of Reagan, Mulroney, Thatcher era to change the way we enforce competition law and to say that so long as prices are going down, any kind of merger, any kind of predatory conduct is permissible. And another way of saying prices are going down is uh, saying suppliers are being paid less. That's one of the ways that you can bring prices down. And so what we've seen is this orgy of mergers that produced uh, a kind of durable dominance for these extremely large firms that can really put the squeeze on their suppliers. And, you know, the creators are among those suppliers who are feeling the squeeze. We're not the only ones, obviously. There's nurses and there's farmers and there's all kinds of people who feed into these uh, choke-pointed markets where there's one giant firm that sits at a, the neck of a very tightly controlled market with buyers on one side and sellers on the other and them just reaping the rewards in the middle. 
But, you know, creators are especially vulnerable in part because we would do it even if you didn't pay us. It makes us pretty easy to exploit. And also um, because uh, there are so many people who want to do it. And so there's always someone that you can bring in to replace a creator who, who demands too much. So the model that you just described is the choke point capitalism you decry. Yeah, it's the it's the hourglass shaped market with customers locked in on one side, creators locked in on the other, and the firm in the middle extracting as much as they can, making things worse for both sides. I will play devil's advocate here and say, yes, but hasn't Amazon enabled people to get their wares into far more places than they might otherwise have done so? and sold more than they might otherwise have done so as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that that part's fine. And, you know, this is a kind of um, sleight of hand that uh, lots of people uh, who are doing bad things like to play. They say, well, what if, uh, or they say like, well, you don't like the fact that um, uh, Amazon uh, has drivers who have to relieve themselves in bottles behind the wheel and that it maims all these workers in the warehouse and that it exploits all of its suppliers and is ruining Main Street. Uh, but you do like getting your deliveries cheaply and, and you do like having all this convenience of having many items. And it's as though you couldn't have one without the other, right? Like, like people say, oh, you like searching the web, but you don't like being spied on. I just don't think that a bearded prophet came down off a mountain with two stone tablets and said, Larry, Sergey, stop rotating your log files and start mining them for actionable market intelligence, right? <laughs> it is entirely possible to imagine a world in which Amazon drivers are fairly compensated. No one dies in an Amazon warehouse. Suppliers get a fair share of the deal and we can search the web and find the things that we want without being spied on, all without maybe producing the surpluses that allow Jeff Bezos to buy a comical penis rocket. What? <laughs> I never thought of it that way before, but would, would stuff be as cheap if we did all the things you just listed? Well, I guess it depends on whether you uh, care about what the price is or how much you can afford is. Because if the price goes down, but your wages go down too, then the price isn't the most important thing. And what we've seen is a steady erosion of the buying power of working people as we've been chasing lower prices. Because, of course, lower prices come from suppressing wages. And so while there's a small number of people who are better off because they reap the rewards of suppressed wages, uh, the actual people who work for a living, that is to say the people who depend on wages, have not seen their buying power go up. They've seen their buying power stay static or, or decline. And we've seen a lot of debt-fueled growth, uh, which is now reaching a, a crisis point. Um, I, I just, again, think that we could have more stuff, uh, better stuff, without having to endure this kind of uh, agony that has been visited upon working people of all kinds. It's interesting that 100 years ago, Henry Ford understood that he had to pay a good wage to the people who made his cars, enough for them for, to be able to afford to buy one, or else he understood that he had a problem. We, we don't seem to know that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's neoliberalism in a nutshell, right? It's this idea that um, we can chase global markets for labor and for consumers, and that we don't really need to ensure that labor is the consumer anymore. And it, it was to our great detriment. I mean, I think we have seen a collapse of many of our institutions as a result. Uh, and I think that we have also seen a collapse in our resilience. And we saw this during the pandemic when long supply chains uh, stretched and then shattered because we had chased these alleged efficiencies to the, the ends of the earth. Let's do a quote here. This is from Choke Point Capitalism, where you write, billions in profits flow to companies like Google, Amazon, and Apple every year off the backs of creative workers. We can't understand their dominance without understanding how they came to achieve it. 
Okay, so let's do that. How has Amazon created choke points for the publishing industry? Sure. So uh, publishing is actually a really good example of how Amazon did it. So Amazon went to the public with an offer. They said, we will sell you books below cost. We'll offer very deep subsidies. We'll offer free returns. We'll offer subsidized shipping. Um, and people piled in and, and bought lots of books. This made Amazon into what's called a monopsonist. So monopsony is a closely related idea to monopoly. A monopoly is a powerful seller. A monopsonist is a powerful buyer. The term monopsony is not widely understood because we don't have a family-destroying board game with that name, but it's actually a much more important concept. Monopsony tips, what economists say when a, when a, a firm gains market power and can start setting its own prices. Monopsony tips at much lower market concentration than Monopoly. There are, are a lot of consumers who are willing to shop in one place instead of another if the price is better. But there aren't a lot of businesses that can afford to have, say, 10 or 15% of their market disappear overnight. And so once a single buyer controls 15% of a market, then they have an enormous amount of leverage over how goods in that market are priced. So Amazon gained that leverage. Um, they locked in lots of customers. So they sold customers uh, shipping below cost. So if you prepay for sh a year shipping, um, you're not going to shop anywhere else unless you can't get what you want from the company that you've already paid for shipping with. Yep. And so Prime customers, 90% of their searches start on Amazon and end on Amazon. So they, they lock people in with shipping. They lock them in with subscriptions to their electronic books and electronic audiobooks. Um, so uh, if you've already bought a book a month, if you've already bought an audiobook every month, you're never going to shop anywhere else. And then they locked them in with technical protection measures. So uh, all of the audiobooks sold on Amazon through their Audible platform, which is the 90% monopolist of audiobooks around the world, uh, and nearly all the ebooks they sell come locked to the platform with something called digital rights management. And ever since James Moore and Tony Clement amended the Canadian Copyright Act, um, it has been a crime to remove digital rights management even if no copyright infringement takes place. So this means that if I, as the author, want to give you, my reader, a tool to let you remove the ebook of mine that you bought from the Amazon app and put it in another app so you can break up with Amazon, I commit a crime. In the United States, that crime under Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine, which is a much stiffer sentence than you would get for merely stealing the book. Right? <laughs> so the author giving you the ability to take your books elsewhere is more criminalized than copyright infringement. So you get the audience locked in. They can't take their books elsewhere. They've prepaid for their books. They've prepaid for their audiobooks. They've prepaid for their shipping. They're habituated to shopping there. The actual book selling market, brick and mortar book selling market is in decline because Amazon's selling below cost. Mm. They're using access to the capital markets. So one of the things we used to do is ban predatory pricing where you sell below cost in order to capture a market. We stopped enforcing that law. Now it's everywhere, right? This is how firms capture markets all the time. It's how Uber blew $32 billion of Saudi royal money capturing the taxi market and so on. Mm. Um, and, and so you get all the customers who now only buy their books on Amazon and only can buy their books on Amazon because their libraries are all locked to Amazon. So any new books they buy elsewhere, they can't keep with the rest of their books, right? Now they go to the publishers and they start demanding unsustainable discounts because that, that subsidy has to end. So Amazon had a program they called Project Gazelle. 
It was a program to seek out vulnerable mid-tier publishers. So the mid-sized publishers who brought us all the really interesting stuff that didn't come from what was then the big six publishers and now the big five. And it was called Project Gazelle because the bargaining agents on behalf of Amazon, the project managers, were exhorted to imagine themselves as cheetahs hunting down the sickly gazelle in the pack. <laughs> the only thing about this that Amazon's lawyers objected to was the name, right? <laughs> so there were companies that tried to opt out of this. Melville House said, okay, we're just not going to give you this discount because we'll go broke if we do. And they said, fine, we're taking the buy button off of every, Amazon, off of every Melville House title. Um, it was only 10% of Melville House's sales, but they didn't have 10% slack in their, uh, in their market. Mm. They had to come back to Amazon and offer those unsustainable discounts and die a slow death instead of a quick one. Now they're part of a big publisher. They had to sell out in order to get there. One of the things about monopolies is it breeds monopoly, right? You can't negotiate as an independent, so you merge to monopoly, merge to monopoly, merge to monopoly. So now we have writers on the one hand, who are independents selling direct on Amazon through the Kindle and Audible program, mm. they're getting a really rotten deal. That deal keeps getting worse. There's a scandal called Audiblegate we detail in the book where over $100 million was stolen from Audible independent authors uh, with using an accounting trick. Um, you have publishers who become highly concentrated. They're giving unsustainable discounts to Amazon still to this day, but because they've also become highly concentrated, they're putting the squeeze to writers. Right? So there are fewer places that you can sell your books than ever. And so those writers are getting a worse deal as well. And then you know prices on Amazon are going up because once they've captured the market, they don't have to keep the prices as low as they used to. One of the ways that that gets disguised is Amazon binds its suppliers to something called the most favored nation deal, which means that if you raise your prices uh, on Amazon, you have to raise them everywhere else. Amazon has to be the lowest price you offer or match the lowest price you offer. More than 50 cents of every dollar that Amazon brings in for those independent sellers, Amazon keeps in the form of junk fees, search fees, commissions, fulfillment fees, and so on. Businesses don't have 50% margins. So the only way they can sell on Amazon is to jack their prices up. But then they go and they jack their prices up at Canadian Tire, Target, and everywhere else because of that most favored nation deal, which means that wherever you shop, you pay more because Amazon is squeezing its suppliers in this way. So this is bad for audiences, it's bad for publishers, and it's really bad for creative workers. And presumably the United States government knows this and could do something about it should they want to, why don't they? Well, we have 40 years of bad precedent going the wrong way, but that's shifting. Um, it's shifting in part to some uh, really great Biden appointees. I'm not the world's biggest Biden fan, not because he's not radical enough or too radical for me, he's not <laughs> radical enough for me, but um, his antitrust appointments are uh, without um, uh, compare in the field. So you have Lena Khan running the Federal Trade Commission who is really taking big tech firms to the woodshed as well as big entertainment companies. Uh, you have the Department of Justice Antitrust Division run by Jonathan Cantor who's doing amazing work. And until very recently you had a Canadian, Tim Wu, uh, mm -hmm. running um, the White House antitrust office inside. He was their tech antitrust czar who conceived of a whole of government approach where they went through the statutory instruments for each of the departments, what we call a ministry here, uh, and found all the different ways that the agriculture department, the transportation department, and so on could all do their bit to deconsolidate corporate power. And all of them are doing this stuff. They, they issued a memo in 2020 in, the, in July with 72 action items and a timeline for hitting them. They've hit every one of them. Hmm. So it's going well. Okay. We did Amazon and what that's doing to authors. How about Spotify and what that does to musicians? Oh my Has gosh. it created a choke point oh, yeah. similarly? Yeah, Spotify. It's, so it's interesting because you know one of the claims that has been made 
is that tech is exceptional. And one of the ways that, that people claim tech is exceptional is that it's exceptionally wicked. That unlike the entertainment industry, tech is very bad for creators where the entertainment industry is very good. This is a very short-sighted and, and really amnesiac argument. I mean, it's the recording industry that decided that the Beatles would get one penny per LP to split four ways, minus 15% held back for breakage and promotion, right? That, that, wasn't, that wasn't the tech sector that did that. And so, you know, there are some companies out there that bring music to the public that have extraordinarily bad deals for musicians. One of them is YouTube, which is part of Google. It's the tech sector. But there are others that have equally bad arrangements that are creatures of the entertainment industry like Spotify. So when Spotify started, uh, it needed to have catalog. It needed to have all the music. Now, 70% of the recorded music is controlled by three companies, Sony, Warner, and Universal. They didn't invest in that music. They just gobbled up the companies that did, bought them at fire sale prices in the 90s and 2000s during various financial crises. And so this has given them 70% of the music catalog and 65% of the publishing rights. They're, they're an oligopsony and an oligopoly, but they're monopolists, right? They control the industry. So Spotify goes to the big three and they say, what's it going to take to get a license to your catalog? And they go, well, this is very straightforward. You just have to make us your equity partners. We're going to be in business with you. Hmm. And so now they have an irreconcilable conflict of interest because every dollar that the record industry takes out of Spotify in the form of a royalty is a dollar that they can't take out in the form of a dividend. And the royalties are monies that they have to split with their creative workforce. And the dividends are theirs to div divvy up as they choose to. They could give none of it to the artist, some of it to the artist, some to some artists. No one has a legal claim on it. It's down to their largesse as to who gets this money. And so they immediately negotiate a rock bottom per stream rate for Spotify. We all have all heard how low the fees are for Spotify. What we don't hear so often is that Sony Universal and Warner insisted on it. And they got most favored nation status. Hmm. So the 30% of music that they don't control all had to sell to Spotify on the same terms. But they negotiated minimum monthly payments for themselves. So say uh, Warner is entitled to say $10 million a month and say uh, all the streams from Warner played on Spotify this month only add up to 5 million. They still get 10 million. The other 5 million is an unattributable royalty. And again, that's theirs to use as they see fit. So they also bargain to be freely included in playlists. If there's playlists you like, uh, you should know that a substantial fraction of that playlist is payola. It's, it's m money people are paying to be included in that. The, except the big three get included for free. They also got free advertising, free marketing, and so on. On the eve of Spotify's IPO, when they went public and those shares that the record companies were holding blew up, their standard deal expired. They had to negotiate a new deal with Spotify. And in theory, they had Spotify over a barrel because that IPO would have failed without a deal <laughs> with the big three. They didn't bargain for a higher rate. They bargained for a lower rate. Why would they do that? Because then the shares would be worth more on the eve of the IPO. Hmm. And so they got more billions from bargaining for a lower rate. And because of Most Favored Nation, the other 30% of music that the big three don't control also took a haircut on the eve of the IPO, but they didn't have any shares. Hmm. So that's how Spotify rigged the, uh, the music market. And the fact that this is not substantially worse, although it has different contours to YouTube, tells you that it actually doesn't matter 
whether it's the tech sector or the entertainment sector. You know, we sometimes say if you're not paying for the product, you're the product, and then people buy like an iPhone and they discover they can't get it fixed at the shop they want. They have to pay Apple over the odds to get mm -hmm. it fixed, and they realize they're still the product. You don't bribe companies into treating you as a product. Companies have to be terrified into treating you as not the product by competition and regulation. Those are the two things mm -hmm. that, that um, uh, regulate and uh, discipline co their conduct towards you. Um, giving them money will not conjure up the respect that you're due. And, you know, by the same token, uh, it doesn't matter if the person who runs the firm that mediates between audiences and creators, runs that choke point, identifies as an entertainment executive or a tech executive, they're going to squeeze you for all they think they can get. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I, I, you're going to have to explain to me why we would be under any impression at all that things will ever change, because writers have to write. Yeah. Musicians have to write and sing music. Um, you, you know, every, movie makers got to make movies. Yeah. Uh, they, if you look at where the strengths and weaknesses of this system are, sure, you got to do what you got to do. So you're describing something called vocational awe. Mm -hmm. And it's something that afflicts not just creators, but also uh, nurses, doctors, teachers, people who take care of little kids, people who take care of the elderly. Mm -hmm. And it does make us uniquely exploitable. And yet, we have seen in Ontario very recently how nurses and teachers can come together to resist that kind of control. Mm -hmm. And where I live now in Burbank, California, every street has got a picket line on it because the, the writers, writers are strike. strike. Yep. And they're about to be joined by the directors and the actors. Hmm. So the second half of the book, I have to say, the first half of the book just unwinds these accounting scams. There's actually a, a technical term for from finance, Migo, my eyes glaze over. It's <laughs> yes. when you make these Baroque scams that, that are just like, you're supposed to bounce off of them. Um, so we unwind them, you know, pick them apart, show you that, that there's nothing in the middle of them except a fraud. Um, but the second half of the book addresses itself to solutions. And, and it's important to note that because we hear from lots of readers who by the time they get to the end of the first half of the book, they're hearing this alarming high-pitched sound that they think is like an incipient rage aneurysm and they want to put the book down. <laughs> but the second half of the book is like what we can do. And look, anything that can't go on forever eventually stops, mm -hmm. right? And as we lurch from crisis to crisis in the entertainment industry, which is full of things that can't go on forever, because we don't have any good ideas lying around, we just grab onto the same bad ideas and try them harder. Maybe if we just make copyright last longer, cover more kinds of works, have stiffer penalties, we will eventually figure out how to solve this problem. And all we're doing is making these three labels, four studios, five publishers, two ad tech companies more, more strong, right? Mm -hmm. So instead, we address ourselves to really practical things, shovel-ready ideas that can be enacted as law, as antitrust remedies. So these companies are racking up all kinds of offenses that will someday come to uh, a potential settlement, right, where these, these firms will say, I don't want to risk what just happened to Facebook in Europe, a 1.2 billion euro fine. I'd like a settlement. What conduct remedies can I adopt that would get this, get me shut of this action? We, we're devising those as well. And I can give you an example of one if you'd like. Um, so everyone who signs a contract that generates a royalty, typically uh, that contract allows them to audit the royalty statements. Uh, and when you audit those royalty statements, you often find discrepancies. And for reasons we can't possibly hazard a guess at, those discrepancies are almost always in the favor of the publisher, the label, or the studio. I'm shocked. And not the creator. We actually <laughs> cite one company uh, in LA that does uh, tens of thousands of record label audits. They've done it for decades. In every instance except one, 
the errors that they found were in the favor of the label and not the artist. I assume this is some kind of very vexing localized probability <laughs> storm that just makes things very hard for the CPAs of the labels, and they have my sympathy. So when you say, hey, you stole my money, I'd like it back, they say, you're mistaken. Artists are adorable, but you can't do math. We don't owe you anything, and you can't afford to sue us, but tell you what, we're such good-natured slobs. How about we give you 50 cents on the dollar, and all you need to do is sign this non-disclosure agreement. So you can't tell anyone else how we hid the money we stole from you and how we might be hiding the money that they stole from them. So they still make 50 cents on the dollar they weren't entitled to. And nobody finds out about it. And no one finds no out. No one finds out about it. So those non-disclosures are very vexatious. And they, the non-disclosure usually also comes with the requirement that the accountant who did the audit never audit that label again. Hmm. Right? Like, this is like telling the forensic specialist, dig anywhere you'd like in my garden, fellas, but uh, not that corner. I'm very sentimental about it. Uh, let me know if you find my wife, though. Right. So um, contract law is a matter of state law. And all of these contracts are settled in four states, uh, New York and California, obviously, Washington State, where the game studios and Amazon are, and, and, and Tennessee, where Nashville is. Um, if we were to amend one or more of those state laws, and amending state law is easier than federal law regulation, to say that as a matter of public policy, non-disclosure can't be enforced where it pertains to material omissions or misstatements in royalty statements that harmed someone due a creative wage, then at the stroke of a pen, we put more money in the pockets of more artists than 40 years of copyright term extensions combined, hmm. right? This is a crack in the machine. You stick a lever in it, you wiggle it around, money pours out of it into artists' pockets. Can it be done? Absolutely, right? Because there are scandals about this all the time. Well, so the next time there's a scandal about this, instead of merely extracting a fine from these companies, why don't we use it as the political opportunity to amend state law? Who's the we? Who has to make it happen? Well, the people who get angry when artists get screwed. I mean, think about what's happening with AI right now. There, people are very rightfully worried that our bosses want to fire our asses and replace us with software, yep. right? They have motive, means, and opportunity to do it. There are a lot of proposals for what to do with it. I think that the one where we give people the right to decide who can study their work is probably not going to work out for us. I think it's going to be like when we gave artists the right to control who could sample them, and immediately the label said, fine, to sign up with us, you have to give us your sampling rights, and now if you want to sample, you pay a label, the label keeps the money, no other artist gets it, and you, the artist who's sampling, is poorer, everyone's worse off. Uh, it's probably not the answer we want, but there are other possible answers. And right now, it seems pretty likely that something's going to happen about so-called AI. It's not artificial. It's not intelligent. But um, something is going to happen because there is a real public sentiment among creators and among their audiences that this is inequitable. And among the purveyors of AI. I mean, even Jeffrey Hinton is out there saying yeah. he's never been more afraid. But those guys are saying, look at how powerful this product that I made is. My God, I'm terrified. The last thing that I wanted to do was make a product so powerful and valuable. Did I mention it's valuable? <laughs> uh, and, you know, I wouldn't want you to think that it wasn't a very powerful, well, very valuable. You're so cynical. I take him at his word on this. I just think that, you know, when you hear these people saying, like, I am an evil sorcerer, uh, I think that, like, the important part for them is the sorcerer part. Uh, <laughs> and for so long as we're convinced that they're evil sorcerers and not snake oil, hucksters, um, they're happy. It doesn't actually matter to them if we think they're evil or not. Okay. Let's, uh, in our last couple of minutes here, talk about your new novel, mm -hmm. Red Team Blues. Sure. Okay. Where does that pick up from where the story of choke point capitalism leaves off? Yeah. So Red Team Blues, it's the story of a 67-year-old high-tech forensic accountant, Marty Hench, 
who's been in Silicon Valley for 40 years, unwinding every weird scam that tech could think up. So there's a very intimate relationship with the work that we do in the first half of Choke Point Capitalism, unwinding these scams. And his standard deal is he solves your mystery. He doesn't take any money up front, but he gets 25% of whatever he recovers. He's uh, lucked into a luxury tour bus from a rock star he bailed out. Uh, it's got marble countertops. It's 33 feet long. And he drives it from the Baja up to Oregon and back again, taking retirement on the installment plan. And he's about ready to quit. And then one of his old dear friends, a cryptographer from the days when crypto meant cryptography and not cryptocurrency, <laughs> gets in touch with him and says, I have unwisely created a cryptocurrency. And even more unwisely, I put a back door in it because I didn't want things to go very badly. And now the keys that control the back door have gone missing. And the money launderers who've been using my blockchain, if they find out about this and if they lose everything, they're coming for me and they're gonna do very bad things to me. And so mm. Marty has one last job and he has to recover these keys. And so it's a very tightly plotted uh, heist novel. Um, you know, my, my, I gave it to my wife and I rolled over in bed that night and she was sitting bolt upright at 2.30 in the morning. I said, what are you doing? She said, I had to find out how it ended. Then I mailed it to my editor and the next day I got a four line email that just said, that was a effing ride. Whoa. <laughs> and he bought three more of them. So it's, you know, people, the, the advice seems to be don't start it before bed. But what it really is, in addition to being this kind of cracking yarn and a mystery and a heist novel, is a book about how finance curdled the hope that tech would someday be a force for human liberation instead of control, surveillance, and exploitation. And about how someone who's been there for 40 years, really on the front lines of that battle, confronts the terrible losses that uh, he's experienced and that the tech sector has experienced as finance has done more and more to strip mine tech of its potential for good and just turn it into this thing that is really um, a force for evil in the world and whether or not it can ever be taken back. You are a great storyteller, I've got to say, That's both in fiction and nonfiction. Thank you. So we are happy to remind people Red Team Blues is the novel and Choke Point Capitalism. How big tech and big content captured creative labor markets and how we'll win them back. Corey, always good to see you here in our studio. Thank nice you. Nice to see you too, Steve. Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.